Welcome to Utopian Horizons. Hello and welcome to Utopian Horizons, a podcast where I cover a different utopia, dystopia, utopian thinker or movement in each episode. I guess this episode I'm doing now doesn't really fit the description I just gave you, but um, it's still uh, about utopia and it's my podcast, so I can uh, break the rules if I want to. So what I'm going to be doing is, is something which I've been saying for a little while. I said I'd do it in the last episode. I have here a book called Economic Science Fictions which is basically a collection of essays on um, science fiction and the economy. Um, it explicitly describes itself as, as a book that's trying to harness the power of the utopian, anima- um, utopian imagination to revitalise economic thinking. So, yes, the book's going to be drawing some links between um, yeah, science fictions and the economy and, and using it as a way to try and reimagine what our economy might look like or how it could operate. Which I think, if you're trying to construct utopia, if you're trying to imagine utopia, uh, economy has to be central to that. Like how things are produced, how how things are distributed, from um, like our basic needs to uh, you know consumer goods or however you want to think about it. In a, in a different economy, the idea of a consumer good may not exist. But you get what I'm saying. This is a really key thing for utopia, and of course, we the, the context we live in we live in the era of capitalism that is an economic system that economy defines defines the contours of the world that we live in uh, as was the case for feudalism i guess that's basically the marxist idea of base and superstructure the idea that kind of the um the economy or the um relations of production define society and culture and institutions in some way um whether you agree with that entirely or not i think the idea that the economy holds a big sway over the way our political and social institutions are constructed is pretty uncontroversial so yeah this is a really important subject and the idea of looking at it through, through science fiction is, is obviously something that really appeals to me as you can tell probably from the the way this podcast is uh, um, and what i tend to do with it so what i'm going to be doing is um working my way through this uh essay by essay um we're going to start today with the introduction just because i think that context is going to be um useful for it and then i will do the first essay proper also on this feed and then i'm going to alternate onto the patreon feed so we'll do the introduction on this feed the first essay on this feed then i'll do the second one on the patreon feed third one on this feed fourth one on the patreon feed and so on and so on um just to be clear, I'm not saying that from now on there's going to be just episodes on this. I'm still going to be doing normal interview episodes. I'll just be dropping in with these every now and again. And obviously these will just be me by myself. So um, sorry if you prefer not to hear me talking too much, but prefer to hear my guests. But yeah, with these episodes, it'll just be me. And it should be a bit shorter than normal episodes as well. Um, so yeah, hopefully that will make sense. So... Introduction to Economic Science Fiction, Six Science Fictions. This introduction is written by William Davies, who edited the book. He starts this off by uh, referring to this 
um, phrase about groping in the dark. Um, the idea that in an industrial economy, lacking a system of monetary prices, there would only be groping in the dark. So this is a, a claim that he says, I'll take his word for it, I had no idea who this guy was before I read this uh, introduction. But this is a claim made by an Austrian economist called Ludwig van Mises in 1920. And uh, Davis explains that this is a very important and contested piece of economic critique in the 20th century. It came from a pamphlet he wrote and it apparently provoked something called the socialist calculation debate. Now, uh, Davies is starting off with this because he says that this debate touches on many themes and questions that this book seeks to explore. So I'm just going to read you those questions directly from the book because I think that gives you a very good idea of the kinds of things we're going to be getting into when we get into the book proper. So these questions are, can we envisage a viable alternative to money as an instrument for the valuation and distribution of goods? Now, of course... Um, the question of money is often one that comes up utopias of course many um fictional utopias money doesn't exist or um yeah it has to be replaced in some way or is at least distributed in a different way but yeah and i think all of us when we try to think of utopia we like to try and think of a society that's not defined by money and that means we need some kind of alternative to that um, so yes very important question uh, next one how do our hopes and expectations get channeled into the market and how might they be directed elsewhere so yeah, there's some there's some stuff in this introduction about that later on which we might get into just this idea of how the market kind of funnels um a kind of desires uh, in a way that undercuts their potential uh revolutionary power i guess i'm kind of paraphrasing but um but yeah, I don't. I, th I think yes. Our hopes and expectations getting channeled into the market is something that happens. And yes, in utopia, we would like to think that would not be the case. So yeah, how might it maybe be directed elsewhere? Can a different economy be collectively planned, or is such an innovation always a figment of the private imagination and hence private invest investment? So if we if we're already starting to think about moving away from market economy, the kind of economy we have now or even a capitalist economy, we have to think about planning. And that's um, a big issue. It's been something that's had problems in the past. So this is something we have to think about in Utopia. When we're, when we're uh, in, in the sort of classical versions of Utopia, like the old school Utopia, where you lay out how things are going to be, that's obviously like a form of planning. You're laying down this blueprint of what this society is going to look like. And you it's often a question of how as I said, of money, like how resources are distributed. So there's often an element of planning that goes into that. So another important question, how does computational advancement facilitate economic transformation? So we have new technology that might allow us to, um, for example, plan in a different way than we could before. Um, so that would link to the previous question. There's a book which I haven't read, but I'd like to get to at some point called um what's it called the people's republic of walmart or something like that i think that's right people's republic of walmart so it's um basically a, a book about how walmart and some similar companies like amazon and stuff are like the largest in, in their argument the largest planned economies in the world and it's this idea that we have a new um it, it kind of uses them as rather than being evidence for the power of like free market capitalism it kind of seeks to show like how these are and um, very tightly planned economic systems and how they kind of show 
the way that we could plan economies now with the technology that we have, how that allows us to kind of monitor and respond to things. So that's one example, I think, but that's conversation for another day, I guess. Could the divergent utopias of socialism and capitalism eventually converge into a single post-capitalist dystopia of ubiquitous surveillance? Um, that sounds a very specific question. I don't know why those two things are necessarily coming together and necessarily creating a surveillance society, but I guess we will find out. So, yes, some very interesting questions that I look forward to hearing the answers to. This... Um, socialist calculation debate that Davis is introducing us to and this this idea from Van Mises. So apparently this was a response to Otto Neurath who had argued that in 1919 that state planning of the economy was the future. His evidence, evidence for this was um, war. You know, just come through a huge world war and obviously during war economies are very heavily planned to meet particular ends. Um, you can see why he would think that that was uh, that was evidence that that would be the future. Um, Davis points out, as others have suggested, that climate change could require a similar response. You know, some people making the argument that we need to think of um, climate change in the way that we respond responded to wars, like to mobilise kind of a war effort against climate change, that kind of level of state planning and so on. Anyway. Um, so it, he was responding to this guy, uh, Neurath, and he was restating the case for f free markets. So this is kind of a classic debate that um, we're talking about here. You know, socialism versus capitalism, uh, planning versus free market, so on and so forth. Uh, interestingly, he points out that this is a time when socialism was becoming increasingly popular and plausible. And he says that it's difficult to think of at this time, but he says it was actually quite a difficult case for Mises to state at that time. Uh, he says that laissez-faire economic liberalism had was seen, seen as belonging to the past at that time. So he says that his first point of, of making this argument was the idea that he said that the question of value was necessarily subjective. So he said that there was no scientific basis on what is good or satisfying. Um, there's an element of truth to that, I guess, but in other senses, I think it be fair to say it's very much not true you can start off by thinking about the difference between um use value and exchange value but even like on a really stupid basic level like i think you could have a scientific basis for for working out for example uh whether a spade made of flimsy plastic is more valuable than one made of metal because if you test them and try and dig stuff up you'll find that one of them will snap and won't work um that's a very kind of um, basic example that leaves out a lot of complexities around the, the idea of value. But um, yeah, I think the, the idea that you can have no kind of concept of value in an objective way is uh, fundamentally flawed anyway. But yeah, um, his kind of response to this, he, he tried to represent his free market economics as like a democratic response to this is the way he tried to frame it. Uh, it's what Davies explains here. And he said that we need a way of determining value that respects the pluralism of modern society, that doesn't make any arbitrary judgments. And his answer of how to do this was with money. So the idea was that this represents a mass of collective valuations. So this is obviously feeding into like neoliberal stuff. Um, and this idea that the market is a, a space of rationality and so on and so forth. Um, 
just to be clear, Davis is not advocating any of this stuff. He's just um, explaining it. And then he's, he says that, you know, class, this is classic capitalist um, idea, which in various ways is patently not true. But the, the idea is that um, he says that profit-seeking enterprises will go bust if they make the wrong decisions in response to changing consumer taste and technology. But what happens to state planning in this instance? Because they, that won't happen to them they will be groping in the dark. And that's where the, the phrase comes from that he starts off the this um, introduction with. So yeah, the, a lot of ideas here that were feed into neoliberalism. Um, he talks about this this kind of what we now have, is a, uh, which wasn't always the case, um, of this idea of there being a very stark choice between the free market and plodding. Um He says that these critiques that Mises is making echoed in people like Margaret Thatcher, who he says denounced all forms of economic utopia in a dogmatic, almost utopian language. He says the utopia of neoliberalism is the eradication of all utopias. Um, I've talked about that before. The kind of uh, 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 you know anti-utopia being a kind of defining element of neoliberalism and its whole end of history thing, um, necessary to its ideological framework. So I won't repeat that here. I don't think. Um, I've already talked about that before. So yeah, we got this free market and planning thing that's been been picked up. And we've also got the idea of the market as um, a kind of man-made technology for the performance of calculation, which comes through um, Hayek, uh, Friedrich Hayek, for example. And Davies says that this laid down a challenge to socialism, which is to find a rival infrastructure of computation to match the price system. Davies says that few socialists felt able to duck this challenge altogether and fewer successfully have risen to it. I don't, I'm not a scholar of economic history, but um, certainly the question of like replacing money is not, I mean, I think it would be fair to say there aren't a lot of like well-known um, unproblematic alternatives in terms of uh, like calculating value that I'd be aware of. So I guess he's right. So he gives a couple, couple of examples of where this was tried. Um, I won't go into those here just for the sake of brevity just worth pointing out here that he does he does make the argument that in the contemporary big data era that we are he says we're in we this is kind of the most promising technological basis we've had for a non-market system of calculation you obviously all these data points being collected constantly all the time the technology allows us to record and collect and analyze that data However, he points out that most of this data is in the private realm, so it's not really in in the in a realm where it can be used um, in the way we might want as an alternative to money or the price system of calculating value. I'm going to skip forward a bit here because um, I want to keep this episode relatively short. Um, I don't think you uh, need me to touch on every single little detail he makes in here. I'm just trying to give you an overview before we get into the main chunk of the book. So some interesting stuff in there about uh, how money's produced and different av- avenues for reimagining the economy um i just wanted to quickly skip to this bit about because this just ties in with the thing about um big data and so on it talks about the, the potential of neuroscience and machine learning and the way that these are used to measure uh, emotion um, and so on he says that these are kind of technologies that are basically are being an could be employed for the purpose of surveillance which is obviously not a good thing but he says that you could see potential there for a new way of calculating value that's not linked to to um money or a different way of thinking about value 
I think that's valuable to do. Like, not just obviously these technologies have very negative aspects, but they are there. So you can't just ignore them. You have to um, look at what utopian possibilities might be might be available within these things if they could be harnessed in in the right way. Yeah, uh, onto this bit, which is I think very important and interesting argument about he's talking about the the, the kind of binary idea between capitalism and post-capitalism and he points out that um, non-capitalist elements do and must exist in these economies which means capitalist economies not least to preserve the very social relations and public goods that capitalism itself relies on to some extent so stuff like the welfare state for example um i point to the nhs as well the NHS isn't a great example, I think, of, you know, you always get, like, the this hardcore capitalism people who, their favourite thing is to go, oh, show me a, a socialist, show me an example of socialism that works. Um, obviously, ignoring the fact of, of the way that the Allende government, for example, was um, basically destroyed by outside interference. Um, but anyway, for me, I would always think about things like the NHS, Um exists within the system of capitalism but the idea that the nhs is a capitalist system or emerges out of capitalist uh ideology or or, or practices is, is patently ridiculous like the idea of the nhs emerges out of the ideas that underpin it emerge out of the socialist uh communist traditions same with the welfare state hence why capitalism is um repeatedly and gradually trying to dismantle those things so yeah, there are. So he's saying this binary is not between capitalism and post-capitalism isn't all that clear. Like these, there are elements that exist in our society now, and he, he describes these as viable ingredients of post-capitalism that are kind of scattered around the capitalist landscape. I really like this idea that we can already find um, little bits of of post-capitalism that are already there and think about yeah ingredients that we might put together to create something new like what we can take from each of these little elements scattered around i think that's really uh, interesting and a productive way of thinking about um a, a potential path to the future um he p- points to things like uh, worker co-ops open source projects um earlier in the introduction a bit i skipped over he was talking about kind of the way open source stuff and um you know digital distribution that kind of makes things effectively free like post-scarcity like the, the challenge that this presents to the capitalist idea of value it's very difficult for to respond to when things are basically free which they are in terms of you know like ebooks and stuff and you know who knows where that might go with 3d printing and so on but um yeah another phrase he uses he, he calls these things enclaves of anti-capitalism within capitalism again a very nice phrase that um i like very much and things that I think could, can be valuable both in theory in terms of thinking about utopian future and practice, like things like worker co-ops can can help. Um, something we can do like now and start to to bring something about uh, in the moment. So yeah, this value of creating enclaves of anti-capitalism within capitalism is something I, I really like. So again, let's um, skip forward a bit. Again, more interesting stuff, but I, I want to keep this short. He talks about the the fate of utopia in a neoliberal age where advances in cybernetics and software are not used for socialist hopes, but instead now weapons of financial investors. Um, 
rather than the internet, for example, being being the basis for a new democratic economy. It's created smart infrastructures in the hands of surveillance capital. You can listen to my cities and architecture episode that I did for Darren Anderson for some uh, for some nice critique on smart cities. Um, it makes a nice point about um, how as capitalist computation becomes more intimate to each person so like social media for example it's like a personalized thing it's ingrained in your social relationships so as it becomes more intimate like that he says it becomes harder to represent it as a source of oppression that might be collectively rejected so yeah we're in a bad situation of where utopia has been channeled and how utopian utopian potential of technologies have been harnessed for the anti-utopian ideology of neoliberalism um how are we going to respond to these things uh he well he asked a question here why economic science fictions um his first stop here is to reference frederick jameson um and and his his argument that kind of there's a, a first step for resuscitating hope, which is to reassert the value of utopianism as a necessary and viable project for all. Unsurprisingly, I agree with that. Um, and it, there's this idea that seeing as um, hope and um, the idea of utopia stems from a deep human need, it doesn't come from expertise. There's an argument that it necessarily has an amateur and artistic dimension that evades professionalism and expertise. So in the era we're in of technocrats and experts and so on, I think the appeal of this argument is is obvious. So uh, Davies says, to write science fiction about the, the economy is to insist on the possibility that imagination can intrude into the economic life in an uninvited way that is not computable or accountable. So yeah, coming from this like place of this amateur and artistic place, um, is necessary necessarily a kind of effective way of of uh, critiquing the um, economy. And he he points out here, uh, making quite important argument that uh, almost responding to a critique you can imagine already being made. I think he says the science fictional imagination is not merely fictitious in the way it imagines economy because it is already because the economy is already partly fictional um i mean pretty obviously like money does not really exist <laughs> it's just like a series of numbers on particularly now where it's just like a series of numbers on your you know on a digital system that gets um added to or taken away from i mean there's this whole bit where he talks about how money is created uh, earlier it might be useful for me to go back to that actually and just um let's have a look here it is uh, uh most money in 21st century capitalism is manufactured out of thin air by the private banking system through the provision of credit to customers most of this money never attains any tangible form beyond its digital record a loan of 100 pounds involves the customer's bank balance being increased by 100 and the assets on the bank's balance being increased by 100 in the form of an iou from the borrower at the same time quantitative easing involves a similar trick being performed adding hundreds of billions to the liabilities columns of central bank balance sheets and the same amount to the bank accounts of pension funds and insurance companies. Money is largely a leap of faith, backed up with machines of representation. So, um, yeah. 
So he, he delves into this a bit more, this link between fiction and economy. He says the human capacity to think or believe that which does not materially exist is, is what makes economic expansion possible. So in the, in the form of like risk management and calculative um, edifices, these are things that, you know, when you're managing risk, these are things that don't exist yet or, or may not exist. They, these, are, they, these are already um, fictions. Um, he refers to Jens Becker, uh, Jens Becker, sorry, and th- he talks about the importance of fictional expectations in the economy. So the value of money, going back to money again, exists only by virtue of our expectation that others would accept it. So this is kind of a, a fictional basis. Like, yeah, I mean, I think we're all aware of the kind of fictionality of money is like money's nothing. It just um, has no inherent value in itself. It, its value only exists on the fiction that we all agree to that it has value. Um, that's how money works. That's how the economy works. Um, he also points to uh, Beckett. This is things like a business plan for an investor. It's um, a narrative about what about something that may be and how that would how that will sit in the future and what will what will happen it talks about um advertisements uh how a product will enhance your existence this is a story this is a fiction uh again risk models he says are all science fictions a reality that has not come about so yeah uh economies and fiction go hand in hand um says the system of capitalism which overgoes change over time uh, in the system of capitalism, which overgoes change over time, the division between real and imaginary value is not absolute or fixed. It says this is how financial bubbles occur. It is when, uh, in his words, uh, collective imagination is mistaken for empirical reality. So yeah, um, the marrying he says that marrying of fictional futures and empirical facts is what makes capitalism possible. Uh, through all these things we're talking about, money, risk management, so on and so forth. Uh, there's a nice quote here, which I guess kind of sums up some of this stuff from um, Becker. Under conditions of uncertainty, assessments of how the future will look share important characteristics with literary fiction. Most importantly, they create a reality of their own by making assertions that go beyond the reporting of empirical facts. Fiction pretends a reality where the author and the readers act as if the described reality were true. So yeah, the idea is that that fiction and um, economy are kind of doing the same thing to some extent, um, particularly in conditions of uncertainty, again, which uh, conditions of uncertainty describes the current moment pretty nicely, I think. Just to to, to wrap this up here, David says that it's important to cultivate ambiguity about the role of experts and amateurs and to challenge assumptions about who influences our political economy and he gives the example of Am Rand who of course um, invented uh, fictional uh, utopias for her uh, fictional economies based around the ideas that she had and and these fictions have had very real consequences he refers to the the libertarian conservative clique that is inspired by it and now has access to the White House uh, and Rand shares a lot of ideas with uh, neoliberalism and uh, kind of the yeah you know, the assumptions about how uh, how people work and societies work and economies work. So yeah, this this is a this is not a, an economist. Um, this is a a piece of, of fiction and an amateur who who is um, creating the political economy in in some way. Well, I have an influence on it. So yeah, he says that this is a, a thing that happens. So this is something we need to be aware of and, and be mindful of. 
And having drawn all these connections between fiction and, and economy, I think kind of shows us why this book might be valuable. He's kind of suggesting we need we need to um, search for and construct these these enclaves that we talked about earlier. Um, so yeah, perhaps there might be some ideas for that in this book as well. So yeah, that's the the introduction to this. Um, to this book hopefully that wasn't too rambly i tried to give you a kind of overview of what came across to me as some of the most important things in it to to set up this book before we get into it um so we'll be returning to this book on this feed at some point and the uh first essay we'll be looking at is economics science fiction history and comparative studies by hajun chang so yeah looking forward to, to getting back to this uh, as I said, hope you're okay with uh, having more of just me talking on the um, on the podcast. I will be getting back with some interview episodes as soon as I can get those sorted. I've got a few things in the works, so so that'll be coming. Um, I need to get back to doing Philip K. Dick at some point as well. Uh, I still want to do those episodes, and I will I will return to Philip K. Dick if you've been uh, enjoying those. Um, as I mentioned, if you're wanting to keep up with this, as I said, the next the next um, one I'm going to do will be on this main feed, but then I'm going to switch to the, the Patreon feed as I alternate. So uh, patreon.com slash utopian horizons if you want to um, check that out and uh, follow along with this uh, with this book and hear those bonus episodes as well. Um, you'll get access to all the stuff that's already on there as well if you sign up to that. Um, yeah, hope you enjoyed it. I think it's going to be fun to to get into the actual essays and hear some of these ideas and, and answers to these questions posed in the introduction. But uh, uh, and as always, if you want to get in touch about anything um, on Twitter at Utopian Horizons, email me utopianhorizonspod at gmail.com, facebook.com slash utopianhorizons. That's that, I guess. Um, I'll be... And I'll, I'll say now, actually, um, I'm going to start... I'm just going to start, uh, as I'm speaking, I'm just getting ready to start reading Snow Crash, which um, I don't know how long it's going to take me, but that's going to be an episode. Um, I don't normally give ad- advanced dates of stuff um, just because I'm always worried about them not happening. But um, yeah, I'm pretty sure this is <laughs> this is going to be okay. This is going to go ahead. So I just want to let you know so that if you do have... Yeah, normally I don't really, people don't really have a chance to send in their thoughts on particular things like before I do the episode. So I'm just mentioning that now. So you've got plenty of time if you have read Snow Crash before and you want to make any comments on that book and it's uh, ideas on utopianism or dystopianism or you want to ask any questions, then this will give you an opportunity to do that. Um, so now you know it's coming. Yeah, um, thanks for listening. I'll be back soon. See you then. Bye-bye.